Hey everyone, welcome to Wisecracks Movie Podcast that we have not yet named. My name is Jared. I'm joined here by our video editor Ryan. What's up? And one of the Wisecrack writers and researchers, Austin. Hey, hey. So um, today we're going to be talking about Darren Aronofsky's mother, and I'm uh, I'm very happy to have assembled this dream team of uh, hosts today <laughs> because first of all, Ryan is a good Catholic boy who grew up going to Catholic school. Uh, oh, so you've and- you've had plenty of experience eating of the flesh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know that was fourth period. Yeah. Okay. And Austin is just a bizarre. A, a bizarre unicorn in that he's a filmmaker, theologian, and philosopher. So, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of feel like... Podcasting out of Ireland right now, right? Podcasting out of Ireland, and I feel like this this movie was made for you, Austin. A nice am, am Catholic I wrong? country. Yeah, it is a very nice Catholic country. I'm surprised I didn't hear any hor- sounds of horror during some of the scenes. Yeah, I was actually <laughs> just chatting with someone in my, uh, my department. I'm a a researcher out here at one of the universities in Dublin and she is a theologian and we were chatting about this and I said I swear I feel like this movie was fucking made for me like it was <laughs> Darren Aronofsky saying I'm going to make a movie for Austin who is a weird sort of lapsed Christian theology uh, philosophy <laughs> student well I hope that you know if it truly was a movie made for an audience of one I hope that you enjoyed it because <laughs> hey two I love two, this fucking movie. Yeah, all right. So let's, you know, when we do our Rick and Morty podcast, we always start with uh, first impressions. There's certainly a lot of uh, subtext and a lot of discussion points about the allegory here. But before we get into that, I just want to hear what is everybody's overall opinion of this as a movie? And so because I, I want you to use your filmmaker brain at first, Austin, before we get into the, <laughs> the allegory. So Ryan, so, Ryan, what do you think of this movie? Well, okay. I mean, the, <laughs> that's a hard qu- – that's a loaded question. Uh, I knew little to nothing going into the movie. I just knew I loved Darren Aronofsky and I'll see anything he makes. I didn't know anything about the plot. I did hear – and this is one weird thing about this movie in particular. Someone said – someone kind of spoiled it for me and said – it's not a literal movie. It's an allegory. That's all I knew. You know, so I didn't know anything about the story, which honestly, for any other time, I would have been kind of pissed at that person. But this movie, like, I'm glad I knew that going in. Because mm-hmm. once it started, and it starts kind of like any other movie, even though it starts, there's that whole weird thing where the house is burnt and it, then it starts. But, um, but yeah, like if I had expected this to be a literal movie, which I think you did, Jared, and then all of a sudden, about you know an hour, hour and a half into it, it goes to bonkers, what the fuck land <laughs> to hell. Uh, I would have been beside myself, and I and I and it, and it makes the F Cinema score make a lot more sense for people who came in expecting fucking Hunger Games five or right. you know something with j-law because they expected her uh, uh or jennifer lawrence i'm sorry well <laughs> then, he, he, yeah but i mean i don't think that only applies to Je- jennifer lawrence fans but also darren aronofsky fans i mean dude first, if you knew if you like darren aronofsky going into this movie you know uh you got what you paid for, I think. All right. Well, I don't want to jump in yet. I want to hear Austin's. Well, hold on. Oh, okay. I, I, okay. And then basically, so so as the movie's going, you know, it starts off a little slower, but then it's still like I, I was still really into the relationship drama. But then, yeah, once it got to that fucking to the latter half of the movie, I was so on board. And even though I did not 
even 60% kind of even understand what was I was watching. I kind of just submitted myself to the movie and to uh, just being like, wow, this is more like a roller coaster ride performance piece than a fucking actual linear movie. And then I was super on board with it as a filmmaker. Okay. Filmmaker, filmmaker fan. All right. Austin, what'd you think, man? Yeah, I... I kind of had a similar experience in that I knew what it was going into it. So I don't even think I saw this movie outside of my philosophical brain because I had a buddy okay. who is a filmmaker in London who I've worked with a lot who said that when he first saw it, he walked out and was like, okay, I guess it's good. And then he started thinking about it and he said, this is a pretentious piece of self-aggrandizing <laughs> bullshit. And then later, he, after talking with a friend of his who kind of explained the allegory behind it, was like, oh my God, maybe this is brilliant. So he told me his experience and knowing that I studied theology, for people who don't know, I did a master's degree in theology. I was training to be a pastor for a really long time and then I ended up doing PhD research in philosophy. But I um, He knew that this would be right up my alley, and he said, so I'm actually going to recommend that you actually know everything before you go in to seeing it. Yeah. And I'm a huge Darren Aronofsky fan. The Wrestler is one of my favorite movies of the last – You know, I, when did it come out? I mean I was going to say the last decade. When was it? 2009? So, 2008. Um, yeah, 2008. So The Wrestler is one of my favorite movies of the last decade, let's say, maybe even of my life. And I actually think that The Wrestler is one of the best Messiah films, the best Christ films – of, of recent memory. Yeah. And I think there's some really interesting subtext in that. So I've always appreciated his thematic and conceptual explorations, obviously with Noah, with like its ecological themes and stuff like that. So I, I don't even know if I saw this as anything other than a philosopher because I was so primed. But with that said, I'm, I'm a Darren Aronofsky fanboy and I love his style. I love the sort of surrealist elements that he cuts in and out. Um, I love the acting. I, I grew up actually as an actor, so I came to filmmaking from being in front of the camera, and I still do some acting periodically when the mood strikes. And so I'm <laughs> a big critic of the medium of film through the lens of performance. And I thought that the performances were, were stellar across the board. Um, and so, and I'm not a huge J Law fan. I think that she's obviously she's great, um, but I, I kind of feel like she's very. As my friend says, once you get to understand her tics or her or her or her treats that she provides, then you kind of get the same thing. And I and, and I agree. It's kind of like Leo for me. But in this, I thought she was absolutely fantastic for the archetype that she was playing. And so I thought the performances were great. Uh, Bardem is great. Obviously, Ed Harris and uh, Pfeiffer were fantastic. And then I, I thought the, the 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 sort of being confined to like. Uh, a house and it's almost like a sort of it was like a weird twist on a home invasion type of horror film but done through a surrealist allegory of a the the sort of history of humanity through <laughs> a genesis story so i thought that was kind of cool um so there was some there was so much stuff going on from a filmmaking perspective and then of course the cinematography is is good because aronofsky has just a great eye for balance but if you are going to criticize it the way you would criticize it is that it wasn't marketed well and because of that oh hell yeah yeah, it wasn't marketed well, and because of that, people didn't know what the fuck they were getting themselves into. So the kind of crazy batshit elements, I think, really would have thrown people off. And so, you know, that was the studio's fault. Well, they definitely did the whole bait and switch thing, where I'm sure they got the final cut. They were like, "How the fuck do we market this?" You know, <laughs> we spent thirty million dollars on yeah. it. I, they definitely were like, "All right, we're going to 
trick all of America into coming, you know, getting their asses in the seats the first weekend. And then they did the smart thing like Monday night and said, and then all their ads were like, this is the most hated movie in America. You Or right, you love right. it. It's the most polarizing movie ever made. You know, so what do you think about it? Come see it. And that was how they should have done it from the beginning, but they probably wouldn't have. Yeah, you know, well, I mean, at that point, it would have been just false advertising because that didn't exist yet. I mean, so in terms of my two cents on the film, uh, we're talking about priming, and I think that this is super important to consider. So I had no priming going in. In fact, I hadn't even seen a trailer. I literally knew nothing about it. And that's actually how I like to go into movies these days. I mean, some of the films that I've appreciated most this year are ones in which I literally knew, knew nothing going in and were and I just love being What's an uh, surprised. So for example, uh, Good Time. Oh, All yeah. I knew is that Robert Pattinson was in it and that it wasn't Twilight and uh, I <laughs> and I and I really like Robert yeah. Pattinson especially his recent efforts. I think he's great. So I just went in had no idea that it was, you know, a dark comedy, had no idea that there was like a crime element to it. Didn't know that it had like a trancey uh, soundtrack and I I was it just uh, blew me away. Uh, wow, with this yeah. movie, I, I think somebody did tell me that the trailer looked like a thriller and I was expecting another Black Swan kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot to talk <laughs> about and I, and, and I don't want to dwell too much. I, I pretty much hate this movie. I know, on a scale from what? one to ten, how much did you hate it? I, 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 I how hate, much did you I hate, hate this it, movie because, so I, I mean, I rewatched it before doing this and I, I found it so tedious. And, you know, I just when we talk about allegory, like, I mean, maybe I'm just being a conservative here. But for me, an allegory does have to work with or at least a narrative that has an allegorical element to it should work without that. And I don't <laughs> think that this works on any level. And I think that the first hour and a half of the movie, once again, like I, I was just flailing as an audience member, really not having any idea that they were going to do any kind of biblical illusions. I was not expecting that. In fact, there's a heart in the in, in the toilet, Jared, and in the walls. The entire movie. Okay, beating. well, we'll we'll get to the biblical <laughs> stuff because uh, once again, uh, you know, I I hated going to Sunday school as a young Jewish child, so I don't remember any of that stuff. All right, so before we get into breaking down these specific allegories that we're talking about, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a summary of the film. So the movie begins with uh, a stone, a kind of mysterious-looking crystal being set in a place, and then a burnt house comes to life. Jennifer Lawrence wakes up. We're seen. We're uh, introduced to a domestic scenario where the husband is an artist who is struggling with writer's block, and his wife is reconstructing the house and trying to create a paradise for her husband to work. Then Ed Harris comes and starts staying in their house and is very tactless. And then that escalates to then his wife comes to visit and she's super tactless and very forward, <laughs> both emotionally and physically toward her. Then their sons come in. They uh, One of the sons kills the other son. Then the funeral procession comes to the house. Everyone in the funeral session uh, messes up the house. They break a water main. Uh, then after everyone leaves... Uh, the artist and his wife, Jennifer Lawrence, have sex for the first time in maybe ever or at least a really long time. And then that inspires him to create his new work finally. And his new work creates some sort of a cult-like following. And the followers of his work come and trash the house. And then Jennifer Lawrence has a baby. The baby is quickly murdered. Everything goes crazy. And then Jennifer Lawrence 
loses her mind and burns herself down at the furnace at the bottom of the thing. And then Kristen Wiig shows up. Of course. How could I forget that? (laughs) And then at the end, it's revealed that uh, Javier Bardem is God and he reaches into her heart, takes out her heart. It turns into a crystal and the whole and the house burns down. And then a new woman wakes up and the cycle repeats. So let's break that. I mean, the allegorical skeleton, I think it can, basically it can be broken down into three things. There's the biblical stuff, the environmental stuff, and I think the artistic stuff, like, you know, the, the nature of the artist. So I want to start with the biblical stuff, and I have a, a brief outline of kind of each element, and I want to actually break these down, each one. Um, so let's talk about first Jennifer Lawrence's character, uh, the mother. So, um, Austin, I'm going to— I, Not the it, mother. Mother! Yeah, yeah, that's that that like punk rock thing is so not There's deserved. There's an exclamation point there. It's dude. so not deserved. And, and it, it should and it's be a, a lowercase. And it's a lowercase m too. So lowercase m with an exclamation point. Okay, so Austin, what does in the biblical sense? Um, I did a little bit of reading, and I, you know, I, I, I guess this is a a Gnostic allegory more so than just a strictly Christian biblical allegory. It could be. It depends on the interpretation. In the theological tradition, there's a long, rich history of understanding there being both masculine and feminine characteristics within the Godhead. So in the book of Genesis, for example, uh, the word that we translate for God in the book of Genesis is most often Elohim, and Elohim is the plural form of God. So Christians try to take that as being uh, an allusion to the Trinity, whereas in Jewish Mishnah and Talmud commentaries on the Hebrew Bible and on Torah – um, it, it's been much more. It's been much obviously they don't they don't uh, believe in the Trinity, so uh, it's been much more kind of varied in the interpretations. Part of which is the assumption that there is a sort of element of femininity within the Godhead or within mm. within the divine itself. So uh, yeah, and then in the early Christian tradition, the Gnostic tradition, there was um, a sort of focus on Sophia, which is wisdom, as being the element of goddessness or uh, the the divine feminine that has its own sort of particular characteristics. And so in the Bible, you'll constantly see both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, particularly the Old Testament in like the Psalms, where wisdom is referred to as a her or as wisdom speaks and she does this. And so there's the feminine pronoun that is used because the idea of wisdom was supposed to be this counterbalance to the maybe sort of transcendent authoritarian aspect of the father. So wisdom is, is understood as kind of partaking within the imminent sphere, maybe, and uh, the father, Yahweh, or Jehovah, is the sort of transcendent father from above. And then that kind of translates into the New Testament in the figure of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, uh, in the Gnostic traditions, oftentimes viewed within the sort of paradigm of wisdom, divine femininity. So I think that the most interesting thing about Jennifer Lawrence's character isn't to view her even as Aronofsky has sort of made explicit in interviews where referring to her as Mother Earth, which is like in Gaia theory, right? You've got this balance right. of, uh, of, of, of powers that um, allows for there to be a sort of meta-stability or um, some sort of, uh, uh, I guess, natural balance, if you will, to, to Earth or to creation or to reality. And so it could be viewed that way, but I think that's kind of a superficial reading. And even if Darren Aronofsky wants to say that, oh, this whole film is about global warming and Mother Nature and shit like that, I am a firm advocate in the death of the author. So um, I think Me that there's, too, brother. Yeah, so there's a lot of interesting sort of intertextuality that we can talk about with regards to this idea of uh, of this relationship between a sort of masculine notion of monotheistic God and what 
could be or what would be a sort of focus on a, a, a feminine understanding of deity. And I think that's what you sort of get in the character of Mother that is most interesting to me is this idea of a different type of god, a goddess mm-hmm. that might not have the same level of prominence because she does act as a servant, as you said. You know, she's beautifying this environment that is that is obviously at a place where the poet can write, but it's also for them. It's for them to be together because her role isn't necessarily servant per se. That's an element, but it's also sufficiency and subsistence rather than Bardem's character who is driven by this lack, this insatiable need for affirmation or for expression or whatever it is, um, which I think we can get to when we talk about him more. But so she isn't just a servant. She's also satisfied. She's also content with stability and she's content with trying to build something in this partnership in seeking a balance with the poet. So I think that there's something – She says like, oh, I'm pregnant. Isn't that enough for you? Right. And it's not obviously. Mm -hmm. But yeah, and and that's what she wants because she's an artist too. Remember, she's got that gold dust that she like mixes into her paint and then she spreads it on the, the house and she's created this beautiful environment. So he's an artist as well, but he needs external validation from, you know, these followers and things like that, you know, from his publisher and from uh, publishing his manuscript. Whereas she doesn't need all of that. She's okay with, with, with subsistence. She's okay with well, enough. Doesn't she her, need his validation? Yeah, but that, that, that's what I mean. Like, it's not as broad. So, yeah, you're right. She does need that. Yeah. So, you mentioned the gold dust. That was actually going to be my next question. I never really understood that. So, I guess I never really put that together. So, you're saying that the gold dust that she puts in her water that she drinks whenever things get, like, shaky or there's, like, you know, a, a large kind of screeching sound and she starts to get dizzy and then she rushes into the bathroom, puts the gold dust into her water, drinks it, and then she seems okay – And now I'm just kind of putting together what you said. Are you saying that that same gold dust is what she mixes into paint at the beginning when she's trying to consider which color to paint the wall? Yeah, I thought it was, wasn't it? Ryan, I I don't know. Did you see that? Honestly, that moment did not jump out at me. Yeah, I thought that's what it was. I thought she put that into the... I think uh, that's definitely possible. I guess my question... if that is the case, why? What is that stuff? Is that uh, there? There are a couple elements here that I question. Like, yeah. is this is this part of the allegory? Is it part of some other element of the allegory, like the more environmental stuff, or the more once again like the whole artistic stuff? Right. Um, so yeah, like one of the big question marks that I wanted to get your thoughts on was definitely. First of all, why do those like you know ringing in her ears moments happen, and how does that yellow powder help her? I'll be completely honest. I have no fucking clue if there's like yeah. a one-to-one. If there's... No, that's, that's good. That's, that's what I think this whole podcast is. Yeah. <laughs> if there's, what if there's the a... fuck was that? Yeah, I don't – if there's supposed to be like a one-to-one correspondence of every element of the allegory, then I think you can – then the allegory ultimately falls apart. But obviously I he cer- has I certainly – yeah, mind. I don't want to give it more credit than it, than it deserves. And I also – you know, I also don't want to make shit right. up. Right, right. And so I really don't know because then the weird thing is is once she gets pregnant, she dumps it down the drain. So right. – dumps it down the toilet. So there's got to be some – there's something with with how she wasn't satisfied and the house – you know, she needed – she she was she was dissatisfied with something. So maybe that was her impulse to create – to kind of create this environment. But then once she gets pregnant, then she no longer needs that. Maybe that's the culmination of her not needing to take anything anymore as a supplement. 
because that's where she finds the culmination of her being, so to speak, which maybe has some problems from a feminist perspective that a woman's, you know, or that the femininity finds her culmination in being pregnant. But I think there's something important theologically in thinking of this balance of powers in understanding the femininity as being a site of fecundity or fertility, right? And so maybe that's what it has. It clearly has something to do with that because when she gets yeah. pregnant, no more it's also, it, I mean, it's also worth mentioning that the first time that she, ex- at least the first time that we see this experience happen where she gets dizzy is when Ed Harris arrives. Yeah, which is the introduction of Adam into the into the scene, which is important to understand theologically. Why would that create an invasion into her harmonious space? And so that's really what matters is, is it's something about disruption. And so she needs to alleviate that disruption until, again, she kind of regains that balance. And when does she regain that balance? Well, After I mean, she unites with Bardem. Just Adam being human in general, is, isn't it just man equals disruption on Mother Earth? Are we? Yeah, uh, and, and, and 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 is the house Mother Earth? Is the house at least at some point the Garden of Eden? Or that, yeah, that was one thing that I was when I was like, okay, so Jennifer Lawrence's mother, because she says Earth she wants to make of, it a paradise. Is her house Mother right. Earth too? Is she part of the house? Right, and I guess and now then, we should also talk about that the house has a heartbeat, and that I so guess does the toilet when uh, Abel's yeah. so. We keep getting ahead of ourselves. So let me just, uh, before we start diving in the nitty gritty. So yes, Ed Harris, when he comes, he is Adam. And then once uh, he's has like coughing fits because he smokes a lot of cigarettes, I guess he's got some sort of lung disease. He's coughing over the toilet. Javier Bardem is helping him. And there's a very short cut to you see that there's like a hole in his midsection where I guess we're supposed to believe that Javier Bardem pulled out a rib and created Eve, which is Michelle Pfeiffer. And then the children come in, their two sons which are representative of Cain and Abel, and Cain kills Abel. Uh, and once again, so now I'm bringing this back to the house. Not only does the house have what I suppose is a heartbeat, but it's also that once Abel's blood is spilled, it's like an open wound that keeps reopening. It's almost right. like well, it, that's the introduction of death, right? So and that's okay. what happens in the Genesis story is death was introduced into a space where previously there was no death. And so mm. I don't know if we can say that it's just simply the Garden of Eden so much as what the Garden of Eden represents, which is a state of perfect nature, right? And so it's a state of perfect harmony, perfect balance, where there is no lack and supposedly in theology, depending on who you read and how you read it, there was no death even before the fall of Adam and Eve, right? Death mm-hmm. didn't even exist. All they ate were like plants and things like that because supposedly everything was harmonious so there was no death even though obviously if you want to really want to get nitty-gritty you have to have death in order to function as life because bacteria and even eating a plant is some form of death but fuck it let's not let's not get too uh, <laughs> critical about theology here. <laughs> but so that's what's going on and then i think really when the reason that that j-law kind of feels that anxiety when ed harris is invited in it's not simply because of man coming onto the planet so to speak or into the house necessarily it's more about I think – and I think that's an element, but I think it's more about uh, the poet inviting him in because that's what she gets frustrated about, right? Like right. Uh, he's like, oh, stay as long as you want, but why didn't you ask me? Why do you just decide on your own to create humanity? Why did you just decide on your own to, to create this stuff that was all for you, to invite yeah. people into our harmonious space rather than doing this together? So you think that it's like the this weird conflict that – of God creates Earth, and then Earth is kind of sentient and is like, why are you going to create these beings to inhabit on me? Can't we just hang out together? 
kind of well, what you're saying. Yeah, not Earth itself saying that, but the divine feminine whose job is to create the balance over Earth so that it would be harmonious. Because I don't think we, we need to make a distinction between Mother Earth and Earth itself. Mother Earth is the goddess. So Jennifer Lawrence isn't Earth. She's the divine feminine whose job is to create balance over the created order. So and then is this, the house it, is Earth. It, then do you think also part of Darren Aronofsky's like intentions is that it's kind of a critic critique of why would God need man? Dude, I love that. To me, that's the most amazing thing about this film. That's exactly it. Because there's a theory or there's a there's a doctrine in theology that's called the impassibility of God. Or and then it's related to the immutability of God, right? Immutability is that God doesn't change. So then the question is, okay, so if God doesn't change, then how could he ever create something? Why would he need to create something? So then theologians will say, well, God is not only immutable, he's impassable, which means he doesn't experience emotion. He has no passion. That's passability, right? So he's impassable. But then it's like, wait, if he's impassable, then why do we say that he loves? How can you love? How can you have desire? How could you ever want to create? Isn't creation a sense in which you need to do something, which then seems to confound this idea of passibility. And I think you're absolutely right. It is a criticism of a particular type of theological doctrine of God that basically questions why would God, who is supposedly immutable and, and impassable, need to create? And then I think, and then this is actually where I think it gets really interesting, and we can come back around to this later. It's the idea of the creator himself, even maybe Aronofsky as a filmmaker, who will never be satisfied. And that this is part of the problem, uh, part of the predicament of humanity itself, insofar as we have defined ourselves in relation to this particular type of theological doctrine. So because of monotheistic religion, or because of us understanding God as himself being filled with anxiety because he's insufficient in himself, that too then breeds insufficiency and anxiety into humanity. And when you are constantly seeking this sort of external validation, you're never going to be satisfied because never enough is never enough. And I think that even <laughs> works for someone like Aronofsky, who's a filmmaker. Are you ever Whoa. satisfied? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, see, that was actually, you know, uh, this movie is so dense that we're obviously <laughs> going to be overlapping with different interpretations. But uh, that was actually the primary thing that I was thinking through most of the film is rather, uh, you know, Javier Bardem as a reflection of, you know, the relationship between muse and artist is actually what I was my mind was mostly on for the first like 30 minutes of the film. Once mm. again, not knowing what I was going into. Um, so more, more on the, the biblical stuff. Uh, I'm curious, do you think that there is a particular moment of original sin? And is it when Adam and Eve break the crystal? Mm. Ryan, what do you think? Wow. Well, you know, I, I honestly, I didn't think of it like that. I guess it is kind of what the apple. That's what you're kind of saying that. Giant right. Yeah. Thing. I mean, in a sense, I guess there's no snake other than just the fact that, you know, uh, Javier Bardem and Jennifer they Lawrence did, explicitly yeah. told them, you know, do don't not touch it. that don't thing. Touch it, it's I mean. very delicate. <laughs> and then they I don't know. Part of me was wondering, did they did they break it purposefully? No, they did. OK. Yeah, it's hard because Adam also shows up. And this is where I think the allegory isn't perfect. Uh, at least with the Genesis narrative, right? When Ed Harris shows up, when Adam shows up, he's already sick. Right, and, and he's like smoking a bunch of cigarettes and he's, yeah. uh, you know, asking like, hey, I can put some brandy in your tea and stuff like that. because man's fucked up, dude. Right, but he's only fucked up because he's already fallen. So then I I kind of thought that he right, showed yeah, up that's... already, you having know, fallen. having fallen. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, see, that, that, that also makes sense to me. It's also like right after they break the stone, him and Michelle Pfeiffer start having sex. And then, so I, I, part of me was like, is that just because, okay, they're having sex and they quite literally give birth to Cain and Abel? Is that the reason why they had sex? Is it some other, like, you know, once again, they, uh, you know, had their full fall from grace by breaking the stone or the crystal and now they're just getting nasty on each other. All right. So then, <laughs> uh, then they have sex. Yeah. And she gets pregnant and he gets inspired his for his new poem, which I'm assuming is the New Testament. Any other any other thoughts on that? And once again, ding, I ding, feel ding. like I've got the basic bitch reading. I want to hear kind of the, the more nuanced uh, reading from Austin or well, Ryan. Shit. If you I mean, have even, you know, I love this movie. And then you even showed me like, like you hated it. And then you said, yeah, I think I've figured out like, you know, this is Cain and Abel, this is Adam and Eve and stuff. And I had, and, and, your basic bitch reading was my like, whoa, crazy. <laughs> That's probably right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if I can, you, I would say I would say we have to remember that Please. Aronofsky is a Jew. He's not a Christian. But he so loves the Bible. He does. But what I wonder is, rather than thinking again of of the the new poem that the poet creates as being simply the New Testament. What if it's more of a Jewish reading of the New Testament, which comes from Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, which is this idea that God will write a new law on your hearts. And so mm. rather than the law being something that is on stone and tablet, uh, God or, or the, the, the prophets, Jeremiah and Isaiah, I'm sorry, Jeremiah and Ezekiel say that um, the law will now be in you. You won't need an external law because now in this new covenant, which then Christians say was inaugurated with Jesus in this new covenant that law will be on you itself. And I think so that's like an important. enlightenment period. Sort of. of. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, not in the way that we think of it, not like a rational enlightenment, but definitely some sort of, of transformation of humanity, you know, that, that, that that's what he's writing. So yeah, it is the new Testament, but it's not like ask your average evangelical Christian type of new testament he doesn't turn yeah. into jesus well do you, do you think that at least the original work or the work that ed harris says you know oh man it changed my life like is that probably the old testament uh i i don't know i actually didn't press it that far what do you think okay that's what i thought i mean i thought you know that uh especially i don't know well it's weird because on the one hand and i'm gonna i might be showing my complete ignorance of uh biblical history but you know the new testament only happens obviously after christ and then they have the baby which i i think is probably one of the clearest allegorical moments is that the baby is christ mm -hmm. you know and uh you know it's sacrifice they literally you know eat his blood and body parts like communion um so i wouldn't it make sense more if the new testament came after christ yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it absolutely would. And that's why I wonder if maybe it's not necessarily the New Testament that he's writing, but rather the mm -hmm. impetus behind the New Testament. And then and then when people come and they start to worship him, it's them sort of like – it's their – they would be the ones who then interpret the New Testament, right? So what he wrote isn't necessarily the New Testament. He wrote the, the idea of the New Covenant, which is this idea that – you know, bringing the world back to rights and creating the one people of God that is promised in the Abrahamic covenant and all this stuff that was promised in the Old Testament. And then the New Testament is the sort of response of that. So it becomes the New Testament maybe, but maybe maybe if you press the 
again, allegory, I don't know if it's like a perfect, it's more of a parable than it is an allegory. Because an mm. allegory, generally, it's like one-to-one correspondence, right? But a right. parable and, and, is kind of, it plays loosey-goosey with this stuff. No, and I'm glad we're going over the minutiae here because I kind of did think of it as an allegory. And I had kind of, like to Ryan's point, just kind of jotted down what I thought were kind of the, the big beats or like, you know, this stands for that. And I mean, I like hearing that it's probably more subtle and a little bit more nuanced uh, because that that does make it more interesting for me. Uh, I, so let's move on to, you know, the the big kabang, the fucking everything gets crazy moment. <laughs> right, uh, the, I mean, the, the, the way I interpreted this is this is just like, you know, all the horrors of the 20th century or really the first through the 20th centuries just bound up into one. Why right. just the 20th century? I mean, I, 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 I it's just I, the I, cycle of Well, of I, I, I corrected myself. First century through the 20th century. I mean, the reason I say the 20th century is because there's a lot of like guns and yeah. like you know military uh presences uh but maybe i'm i don't know becomes like brazil kind of at the end <laughs> in, in what in way the, just in the sense that you know the whole m- movie you've been watching is you know turns into a uh y- you have no orientation you're just kind of running around with the main character like and things are happening around him like a haunted house kind of right Yeah, I mean, that's the point at which the movie goes like batshit crazy. And I think that if the allegory falls apart, it's kind of like, all right, dude, you're trying to squeeze too much in seven minutes. But, eh, I mean, I I love the end of this movie. uh, Yeah. (laughs) What what propels the insanity? Like, you know, if we're to believe that, like, they break the baby's neck and then everyone's, and then. Well, right. But, like, so the, uh, so he, he writes this new poem. It creates some sort of movement and he gets, just gets, keep, getting more and more egotistical he uh needs he needs the validation of people and then things just keep spiraling out of control he doesn't do anything to stop it because he's so swept up in his own ego right well my deep my deep read of it would be like i said earlier and i think this is really the kind of uh, maybe a crucial theme to think about is that if he himself as god the creator is insufficient in himself and needs external validation so too will his creation you know the people that he invites so too will they be insufficient in themselves and mm. they will need something to satisfy so what do they do they come to see him because they need to have a, they need to touch him they, they, they need to corrupt him you need to master him you need to claim him you can't just let him be right they can't just enjoy uh, which would be like a more Eastern philosophical idea of sitting in kind of silence and meditating upon something rather than trying to master it whereas Monotheistic, monotheistic theology is all about trying to claim and know through knowledge and doctrine and practice in the sacraments and through the stations of the cross or, um, you know, whatever, or through pilgrimages and things like that, depending on the theological interpretation within Experience. the monotheistic tradition. Right. So, so then they come and see him and then he sets up and he's like, oh, I'll give you all these autographs, which is, again, his ego. But then what happens? They start stealing shit because it's his. So, again, it's not just enough to see him. It's not just enough to get an autograph. It's not just enough to touch him. Then they have to have a piece of him. So then it turns into this idea that his anxiety, that the monotheistic God's anxiety is filtered down through creation's anxiety, which means that humans themselves are intrinsically pathological. And so they're going to need to master and corrupt. Is it perhaps a critique of the idea of God creating humans in his image? Um, is there supposed to be, and I never, I never really thought about this until now. Is there supposed to be some sort of a parallel in terms of the, the vices or the bad qualities of Javier Bardem that are also present in Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer, and then like you know that just gets 
amplified as it goes on. I think there's something to do that uh, to that, and on top of that, he loves everybody. You know, like the whole time, no matter even if people are, he's not as upset as Jennifer Lawrence at everyone fucking up his house. You know, he's even the one that that hands off the baby to to the crowd of people. Right, but know? that ends up being really bad. And yeah, I but, mean, it really just seems like. But, I, I, but I think, that's to I think, your point, though. Well, I think that uh, Jennifer Lawrence's character is a constant reminder that he loves himself more than right. more than anything. Yeah, she says that right right before she lights herself on fire. That's what she says, you know? Right. Your love your love for me was about yourself. You loved how much I loved you is what she said. Right. Yeah. And so what, what does Javier Bardem say when, you know, her body's all charred and he's carrying her away? And doesn't she say, who are you? And I believe, and I couldn't even hear this in the theater, but I believe he says, he just says, I am. Is that, oh, is that right, know. or does he say no, something I thought, else? I thought she said – I thought I didn't think it was that. I thought it was like you came back or, or like you're still here or something like that. I I don't know. No, but, I, but, I mean, but what, is, what does Javier Bardem say in response to that? Oh, Jesus. I don't know. I didn't pay attention to that. This was the, this was, this was the point where he reveals himself as God. Once again, I remember seeing it in the theater and I – just the mixing or something. I couldn't hear what he said, but I asked my girlfriend at the time and she said that he said he was God. But even she had a hard time. Uh, listening to it. See, I didn't catch that. The only bit that I got from him carrying her that I that I remember at least now was when she says uh, something along the lines of, uh, you know, I've only got like one thing left or whatever. And then she says, you can take it. But that was, I guess, after he's kind of sets her down and then she, she, she's like, you know, there's still one thing left. And she kind of just says, yeah, you can take it. And that's when he reaches inside and grabs her heart. Right, and the heart is the stone, and then we see that this whole thing becomes cyclical. Um, I, I read on the internet that the original title for the movie was Day Six. What happens oh. on Day Six of he creates he creates man? There we go. Well, that would that's a lot better context, <laughs> right? I mean, I I feel like I would have. I mean, that talk about priming because mother because mother could mean anything but, uh, or you know um all right so we've definitely talked a lot about the biblical stuff i want to move on before we get into the environmental stuff because i feel like we kind of covered that i mean i don't know if there's really much to say other than that but i, I want to briefly touch up upon the uh, artistic stuff because once again the first time i saw this the first 30 minutes into the movie i was really th- reading this as like darren aronofsky being a self-aware artist who you know fresh or relatively fresh off the breakup that he had with Rachel Weisz, um, <laughs> you know, in which he just, you know, he sees himself like Javier Bardem as like this genius that he needs constant validation. And he mm. has this muse, uh, Rachel Weisz, who, you know, he ends up just fucking it up and, you know, using her love to create his art. And then, <laughs> that's you know, what you thought this movie. Yes. Was about? And, then, and then he basically exploits her love. D- takes it, you know, like basically rips her heart out, puts it on a pedestal, and then just finds a new girl. You know, I'll, I'll be honest, bro. I kind of think that's there too. You know, I the do. funny thing is, the, the funny thing is, is that uh, so my friend Mike, who works at the office too, went to a Q and A on the opening night at the ArcLight here in Hollywood, uh, and Darren Aronofsky was there. And if I may also add a small detail, it was about eighty degrees outside, and fucking Aronofsky was wearing a scarf, <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course. And uh, somebody asked him that because, uh, as you said in interviews, you know, same what Mike said in the Q and A, he was mostly focusing on yes, it's very obviously an environmental film and very obviously a biblical film. And somebody raised their 
Hannon said, uh, is there also an element of you uh, reflecting on your own artistic process and your relationship with, uh, you know, people that you love and the way that your art influences that? And he just flat out said no. <laughs> which which means yes. which means he's either not self-aware because there's no way that that's not in there right no like, i don't I, I disagree with you i don't but it's like it's an artist who is i mean i mean any, or any, not, any, he's any, not going to spend three years of his life to make a, a movie that's an allegory for him and rachel weiss's relationship he's a totally about esoteric fucking well certainly what we just spent like 30 minutes talking about the other elements it doesn't right. have to be just one i know but i mean i i do think that that i i think the whole relationship with him with javier bardem and jennifer lawrence is like the one kind of hook for the for normal, you know, it, it's like a the one. Re, it's a relationship movie. No, it is. Yeah. That's giving it way too much credit. I, I, okay, I'm not saying that it, it, it succeeds in any way. Is this? I'm just saying that it's the it's the the idea of an old you know guy and his sugar mama. You know, that's a relatable idea. That's right, all but I'm even to say. even um the I'm sorry, uh, Kristen Wiig's character refers to her as. Uh, you know, the inspiration or the muse, you know, like basically just a, a means to an end. I mean, do I think it's specifically Rachel Weisz? I don't really know that much about their relationship, but now he's dating Jennifer Lawrence. He does have <laughs> That's a, after the movie was coming out or even he does have a reputation of. for being, I wouldn't say necessarily a womanizer, but he definitely has, you know, dated a, quite a number of high profile actresses. And has he? I don't I didn't know. Yeah, and I don't know. Part of me was just like, has Jennifer Lawrence seen this movie? Does she not yes. know what's about to happen to her? <laughs> that, you know, he's just going to make this. I mean, luckily for her, it breaks the narrative in that this movie sucks. Sorry. <laughs> so it's not, like, it's, not, it's not like he can just exploit her emotions to create something brilliant and then discard of her uh, because he didn't create something brilliant, <laughs> in my opinion. I, I'm just throwing shade. I mean, obviously, there's some <laughs> smart stuff in here. But, um, yeah, I mean, to me, that seemed pretty obvious. I mean, anytime there's an artist who relishes in self-aggrandizement and being called a genius. And anytime you're creating a piece of art <laughs> such as Mother that is this ambitious, I don't really see how you don't expect people <laughs> to call you a genius. I mean, you're making a piece of art that is very deliberately enigmatic. Yeah, but he's he's literally his main character is freaking God. I mean, you know, it's it's basically <laughs> like you saying, like, yeah, but he, no, but yeah, he's got, first of all. He's only God on an allegorical level. He's an I know, artist. I know, he's but, an artist and a poet if we're to pretend but, but that there's some Darren, sort of just when, when regular Darren, text. I believe when Darren Aronofsky sat down for his five days of writing this that he was thinking more on like Fine. That doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean he's not self aware. I mean plenty sure. of plenty of artists create sure. stuff that's their own therapy and they don't realize it was, until they've already put thirty million dollars into I'm it. I'm saying it's a mere coincidence that he happened to be writing about God and he also just happens to be a genius too. Yeah, but more to Austin's <laughs> point, death of the author. It doesn't it, once again his right. awareness doesn't matter yeah but you're saying death of the author but you're saying that it's about the author right well no i'm saying that you're saying that oh well we shouldn't interpret it like that because darren aronofsky probably didn't deliberately put that in like he deliberately put the biblical stuff and the environmental stuff and i'm saying that no matter what he meant to do the stuff about him as an artist and him uh you know as an avant-garde person who gets a lot of praise from people and having to feed off of that and having kind of serialized relationships with young actresses that function as his <laughs> muse. Once again, Jennifer Lawrence is basically the tool from which he, mm. you know, creates this movie. And Rachel Weisz was, you know, the his muse <laughs> for the fountain. 
So you're saying Rachel and, and Weiss did was he, the... And did he date Evan Rachel Wood for the uh, for the wrestler? I did, don't know. Didn't he? I don't know. I think he did. Listen, so, why so, else do certain, you know, heterosexual, red-blooded men become directors in Hollywood? It's so they can date young you know, ingenues. Uh, see, are you joking there? Because I actually think that that's no, something... No, I'm serious. No, you should be serious. That, and, like, you know, that that's something that is, like, kind of one of those things that people don't talk about. Like, you know, you, you hear about all these stories about... Uh, Hollywood people acting very inappropriately towards women, and of course their their um, their actions are in no way excusable. But nobody wants to, you know, uh, state the obvious truth that like you know a lot of people get into this industry, you know, for the reason of like you know achieving some sort of object of desire, usually a really Do hot they? woman. I feel like they. That's I, more I, of like I, one I, of those like they get into that uh, amount. They have that amount of power, and then they see you know a bus of of young actresses get off the, uh, you know, at Sunset Boulevard every day, and then they're like, well, shoot, I have the power to put them in movies, you know. I think so you're the, saying it never crosses their mind until they get to that point? I think that I, there's a significant that. amount people of people, people who... People I'm just, you know, whatever, uh, uh, but I'm just saying that I, I I don't think that most people are like, man, I want to get in the film industry because then I can take advantage See, of I these young See, I think so women. much of it is like vengeful male sociopathology if it's just like, you know what, I got <laughs> I got shit on and I got shit on in high school and the girls didn't love me. Well, I'm going to move to Hollywood and be a badass artist What do you mean? A lot, of these, a lot of these people are gonna, like, we're the, bad, we're the cool badass kids in yeah, high but not school all of that them. become the studio executives that are fucking doing that. I don't know. Most of the directors were the drama nerds. They weren't right. the power. They, they, I think a lot, I think there's a lot of resentment. There is a lot of, yes. of that, you know, that if I do get power, you know, it's the famous Scarface thing. First you get the money, then you get the power, then you get the women. Uh, he doesn't say women. He drops the female dog term. But don't get but, high on your own supply. And I feel like Aronofsky's exactly. getting high on his own supply. <laughs> and, and, and so you think that the the uh, the glowing crystal stone at the beginning is from Rachel Weiss's disintegrated well, body? Well, no. I mean, you see a face of a different girl. Is it? Me- is it I mean, metaphorically, I think it could be it could be read that. Way. <laughs> yeah, I I'm right. actually inclined to agree with you, Jared. I think oh, that, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I I think that a lot of this. I I don't know if it's so specific but like if we had a freudian psychoanalyst here i'm sure that they would be able to peel back some layers and be like clearly this guy has some guilt shit that he's dealing with i call bullshit oh no see i think that uh aronofsky's fucking therapist is having a field day with this movie (laughs) yeah i mean even even if he isn't sort of venting or expressing repressive desire or whatever i think that there is an interesting reading that we can take from this which fits fits in line with this which is that idea that the artist is never satisfied and that if you constantly are seeking that external validation, then you're never going to find that harmony because yeah, sure. you're going to corrupt everything and then everything around you is going to be corrupted. And then maybe that's the state of nature. You know, and, maybe and, that's maybe that's what that, that's the human predicament itself. So then to transition to the environmental thing, are we to believe that? Uh, so once again, if we were to say that the artist exploits the muse and basically just, you know, rips her heart out and uses it and creates great art with it uh in terms of the environment so jennifer lawrence is the environment is the house the environment the house is the environment uh i think the point is is that is that if he respected the other element of the godhead which isn't just masculinity but also femininity and what is the other side of the potential of what 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 reality could be um that isn't just you know, seeking self-affirmation, plunder, 
uh, self-interest or whatever, if we could if we could have that greater balance, then you would have a more harmonious existence. But – and I actually think that this is where – going back to Ryan's point earlier, the criticism ultimately lies in the reason that we have global warming, the reason that we have ecological catastrophe staring us in the face is because of our theological commitments to this type of God. Whereas if we had a different, more harmonious understanding, maybe an Eastern or a more balanced uh, appreciation of the divine feminine, then we would not be engaged in such plunder of the material world. But it's because of monotheistic theology that the Western – and we have to remember too, the Western world is responsible for a vast majority – of ecological crises that we're facing. So, and what is it that defines the Western world? Monotheistic theology in so many ways, you know? Capitalism emerged, read Max Weber. Capitalism emerged out of sort of a, a Protestant ethos, you know? So there, so many people would try to even argue that Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation is responsible for the emergence of modernism and liberalism. So um, Catholic theologians, Ryan, uh, hat tip to you. Um, Catholic <laughs> theologians would love that shit. There's a guy named John Milbank who writes about this explicitly. So I think that's the criticism is that the Western, the Western world plunders because of their bad theology. And the bad theology is Javier Bardem. Is like a patriarchal conception of theology that doesn't respect the feminine. Right. All right. Well, that's it for today. Uh, certainly an interesting episode to get this podcast started off with. Um, it, we are going to start next episode by taking some questions for you guys, also some comments and uh, some requests if you guys want us to cover a particular movie. Uh, you know, we'd love to hear what you guys want to hear about. So uh, go ahead and email us at the email address for our Rick and Morty podcast. That is uh, the squanch at wisecrack.co. That's dot co. And uh, we will parse those out until we figure out a name for this podcast, because right now all it is is the Wisecrack Movie Podcast, and uh, we need to think of something better. So um, thanks, everyone, for listening. I want to thank uh, my co-hosts, Ryan and Austin. I want to thank Austin for being making us all seem smarter because he certainly brought it with the <laughs> with, with the <laughs> smart you, with the smarts thank you I feel, I feel bad i was too i was too talkative next time no no uh, no, right? no, no i mean we need i mean I honestly this was not going to be us i mean you know we try to pride ourselves on being smart and uh this was not going to be smart without you because, <laughs> I, I got a lot more but, out of the movie uh, yeah because uh, the, once again uh theology is not my area of expertise i am the worst and, catholic uh schoolboy <laughs> of all time yeah way to go ryan at least i have an excuse <laughs> All the stuff I learned was in Hebrew, and I had no idea what the fuck I was saying. Uh, <laughs> all right, guys. I guess before we go, I just want to hear, like, after this conversation, do you guys like it more or less? I like it way more, and I liked it a fucking shit ton before I walked in here. Okay. Austin? <laughs> I mean, I think this movie is brilliant. I want to go see it again so bad. Jared, will you do me a favor? Will you take <laughs> everything that we've said and go see it one more time, thinking <laughs> thinking along Come these on. lines of everything that we've said and see if it enhances your viewing experience. And out there, if you haven't seen it yet, I know that we just spoiled the shit out of this movie. But I promise you, I think that this is one of those weird movies that it only is good if you know everything about yeah. it. it. Yeah, can't be well, spoiled. so I'll just say that. Do I like the movie more? No, but I like I liked having this conversation. You know, I think I think as a as a subject Fair. of discussion. Thank you, Aronofsky. You, you know, like it's definitely been an interesting, very educational and awesome conversation. Would I want to like sit down and watch the movie for an hour and 45 minutes again? No, <laughs> I wouldn't. I, I, I think, can't wait. I, th I, I think a beat sheet, you know, and us just kind of uh, discussing the beats and the symbols will suffice because 
the the coffee conversation afterwards is, I think, the best you're going to get. Real quick, what's everyone's top three Aronofsky movies? I'm going to go first. Number one, Noah. Number two, Mother. Number three, Requiem for a Dream. Oh, my gosh. Number four, The Wrestler. Number five, Late Back Black Swan. <laughs> Keep going. All right, Austin, you go. <laughs> Uh, number one is The Wrestler. I think The Wrestler is fucking brilliant. Uh, I'm going to say number two, Mother, and then I will go number three, Requiem. All right. I'd have to say number one, Requiem, number two, Black Swan, number three, Pie. <laughs> pie sucks. No, man. Pie is tight. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for us. Uh, thanks, everyone, for watching, and we'll catch you next time. Peace out, mother! Later. Later.